I worked undercover for about, for just less than 14 years. So I used to catch drug dealers for a living, essentially. And over that space of time, I realised that everything that I was doing was not only futile, because futility would be bad enough, but it actually was causing immense harm, not only to individuals who are vulnerable people who needed help, but also it was actively increasing the levels of crime, in particular violent crime, in our society. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our fantastic guest today is a former undercover police officer here in the UK. Neil Woods, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, we've got so much to talk with you about. We're going to talk about drugs. We're going to talk about corruption in the police force. We, we'll talk about lots of things. Before we do, for those people in our audience watching and listening who don't know who you are, what is your story? Who are you? How are you where you are? How are you sitting here talking to us? Uh, well, I am a former police officer, former undercover police officer, uh, and I worked undercover for about for just less than 14 years. Um, and I used to almost entirely investigate uh, drugs offences. So I used to catch drug dealers for a living, essentially. And over that space of time, I realised that everything that I was doing was not only futile, because futility would be bad enough, but it actually was causing immense harm, not only to individuals who are vulnerable people who needed help, but also it was actively increasing the levels of crime, in particular violent crime, in our society. And like many police officers like me around the world, uh, we I now campaign as part of an international movement for an evidence-based drug policy to take the power away from organised crime. Mm. Um, go for it. Well, all I was going to say is, uh, before we get into talking about policy and all of that, just talk to us through the process of what you actually used to do. Yeah, I used to uh, travel from one inner city area to another. Um, and I would work undercover in those areas for around six or seven months. And I would essentially pretend to be a problematic drug consumer. I would network amongst people like that. Uh, people who lived in squats and homeless and street people. And I would get them to introduce me up the chain to the local drug dealers. And then by increasingly large amounts, network with the sort of regional controllers to, to see how far up the ladder I could get and infiltrate those gangs to gather evidence of conspiracy. And then they would all get arrested at the, the, at the culmination of that operation. Um, so surely if I'm a normal person listening to this, I'm going, well, you, you've, you've done a smashing job. You've come along, you've outed a drug gang, they all get arrested, they all get locked up. Isn't that brilliant for protecting the community from the evil of drugs? Well, you, I, I used to believe so. I right. used to think, you know, this is this is great. I'm so privileged to be uh, part of the police who go after the most dangerous people in our society. But the reality is that whilst the police are very, very good at catching drug dealers, and they are really good at it, if you gave them twice the resources and told them to catch twice as many, then they would. But that's part of the problem that's actually a significant part of the problem because the police never reduce the size of the market, but they do change the shape of it. And if you aggress it, if you police it more aggressively, then you change it more aggressively. 
And what it means is that perpetually it gets more violent because you create a Darwinian situation on the streets of our nation and around the world where the most ruthless and violent criminals are the ones that are left behind and successful. Drugs policing sharpens the sword of organised crime. And nothing sharpens it as much as covert policing, like the kind of thing that I used to do. But it took me a long time to realise that. You know, it, I, had to, I had to face up to the evidence before my eyes. Uh, and it's odd, you know, when you're really wrapped up in that world of covert policing, the intensity of it, you are resistant to that evidence, you know? You, you, you're so wrapped up. You, you, you've got to have the right drive and believe in what you're doing. Um, and, and to be honest and look around and be honest about the impact of it. That, that, that took time for me. I was a bit slow. Was there a single moment that sparked an epiphany in you where you thought, hang on a second, I'm doing more harm than good here? There's, there was a lot, to be honest, because I was resistant to it. And there's probably three key ones. Do you want me to run through them? But yeah. For those briefly. Okay, so the, I suppose the first one was, uh, uh, or one of the first was in Nottinghamshire. And... I just sort of worked out that I really needed to network amongst the homeless people, the people who were really struggling with life. So I'd, I was learning to dress down and be really filthy clothes, disgusting clothes. And I even developed a technique that at the end of the day, I would time, take my clothes off and tie them up in a plastic bag and put them in a warm place overnight so they'd really smell the next day which my backup team used to love, as you can imagine. <laughs> in fact, they loved it so much, they, would, they, would, they were driving me to, to, this, to the plot, uh, the place where I was working with the day, um, to drop me off. And they were driving me with the windows wound down and their heads out the window mm. shouting, you dirty bastard. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, was nice, but um, I could see the point. I was, I was a mess. I looked yeah. a mess, smelt a mess. Anyway, they dropped me off and I started walking to meet this heroin dealer that I'd been buying weights of heroin off for for quite a while. Hmm. And as I'm walking along, it's, it's where the red light area used to be in Nottingham, um, near where the Goose, Goose Fair is. And, and, and it's a long, bendy road. And as I'm walking on this road, I hear this, this voice that said, sex for sale. And I thought, well, I know this is Nottingham, but it, at half past one in the afternoon, that's quite forward. And I kept walking. And again, I heard sex for sale. I didn't see her. Then I heard it heard again, sex for sale. And then as the road straightened up, I saw her. As I'm walking towards her, she looked me up and down. Obviously, the state of me. She looked me up and down and said, cheap, sex for sale? Well, I walked past. I didn't think anything more of it. And I went to buy the heroin from the dealer. Um, and then I, I did an evidence drop. And then I went to buy some crack cocaine. And then at the end of the day, I did a debrief. Because what you do, you sit around with the team. You, you evidence the... You know, you, you go through the evidence uh, system. You tell the intel everyone. Tell the whole team needs to know what's going on. In other words, and I told them about this woman offering me cheap sex, and they all laughed. And whenever I've had a big audience in front of me or a, a group of people, they've always laughed. And I trained later undercover cops later, and everyone laughs. But when I look back on that day, uh, if I can, I can close my eyes and I've got no idea what the heroin dealer looks like. It's just one more dealer in an end, endless, endless stream of dealers. But I can picture her completely. She was tall, slim, and she wasn't a day over 21. And she was clutching a can of special brew. And she was clutching that special brew because she was trying to fend off a withdrawal from heroin, which is what took her 
That withdrawal is what took her to the streets of Nottingham to offer me cheap sex. And it sort of haunted me that night because I represented all of the resources of the state. There was a lot of resources into me, all my backup team. And and I walked right past her. There was no other resources there to help her and she clearly needed help. And that sort of, I suppose it was one of the first clues to me that something really wasn't right here because there's always another dealer. And theoretically, the way that cops talked at the time, theoretically, what I was doing was to protect her, was to stop these evil drugs getting onto the streets and corrupting people like her. That's the theory, isn't it? And yet she was there on the streets because she's got no no legal protection. So that was one thing. And another thing was um, what I, what I learned was that in order to get get people to do what I want, I have to manipulate them. And so I would always seek out the most vulnerable people because they're the easiest to manipulate. And if that seems ruthless, well, of course it's ruthless. That is the nature of undercover drugs policing. It's bloody ruthless. Um, and so one guy I I manipulated in Nottingham, a guy called Cammy. Um, I mean, I got really friendly with him. I wooed him, you know. And it, I wooed him because he was very useful to me because he was on the periphery, the very periphery of an organisation called the Bestwood Cartel. He was a user-dealer for them. And um, How did you woo him? Well, I spent time with him, but most importantly, I used empathy. I listened to him. And, you know, I heard about his problematic childhood, abusive father, that kind of thing. And I just spent time listening. But also I had some fun with him. I went shoplifting with him, which was, <laughs> which was great fun. No, no seriously. Well, you know, if you know you've got a get out for your jail card, mm, you know, yeah. it's mm. great, especially if you're acting a pair, you know, take turns and be in lookout, that kind of thing. Anyway, um, I, so I spent a lot of time with him. And, you know, that was another very successful operation. I think there was 56 people arrested. A few, a few decent gangsters uh, but the thing but the trouble is he was arrested as well and he was committing offences on bail that I was gathering evidence against him for while I was being friendly with him and when he was in police custody he ended up being on minute to minute watch suicide watch uh, and as he told the interviewing officers the reason for that is that this was the last straw for him it was the last it was the biggest blow for him because he thought he'd finally found a friend he could talk to he'd never had that before and that's what made him suicidal. So therein lies the ruthlessness, really. Um, and, that, you know, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And that, that it was just emotionally disturbing to me. And then I suppose the, the real defining moment, but I, I still went into it, though. I still carried on because I was persuaded to do it because it was pitched to me that, look, these next gangsters, they're even worse than the last lot. We need you to catch them. And by this time, I'd become a sort of, I suppose, a troubleshooter. So that because I'd had some success, I got the reputation and that meant that I got the more difficult jobs. And the job, the next job I did, the Burger Bar Boys, they, they had two other, other undercover cops tried to get close to them and they hadn't managed it. So they persuaded me to, to have a go. And that's why I, I went back into the work. 
But for that operation, I mean, I almost got, I, I was convinced I was going to die on several, several times in that operation. I was stripped at gunpoint. I was assaulted. Um, it was a, a, every single day of the operation in the company of the Burger Bar boys when I was with them, I, I always felt that there was a potential imminent violence every single day. Uh, but at the end of the seven months, I'd got evidence against 96 people, the six main gangsters and 90 other people, all the sex workers that they were employing, runners, all, all these people. And I knew there was actually no one else to catch because there were no new phone numbers that I hadn't already got, no people mentioned that I hadn't already met. So I thought, wow, this is just going to wipe the place clean. This is extraordinary. And there were cops brought in, hundreds of cops brought in, five different counties provided help for this. And so... I thought this is going to be a dramatic effect. Anyway, two weeks afterwards, or sometime after the event, the intel officer spoke to me, who was tasked with keeping his ear to the ground, just to you know, see the impact of the operation. And he said to me, yep, we managed to interrupt the heroin and drug, heroin and crack cocaine supply in Northampton for a full two hours. Seven months of work, 96 people arrested. All of that trauma that still scars me to this day from that event from that operation to interrupt it for just two hours that's not even enough time for someone to rattle from heroin hey francis have you decided what to get your dad for father's day same thing as always a couple of pints down the dog and duck plus a new brexit means brexit car sticker to replace the one I got him last year. Mate, Brexit was in 2016. Do you not think he might want something a bit more up to date? Like a new Ridge wallet. This is mine. It's smooth, sleek, stylish, and it can hold 12 cards. And there's also a clip on the back for cash as well. It's not going to create a bulge in your trousers like those bulky old wallets. It'll make your dad look like a top level player. Great idea. He can also put his Brexit sticker on it, which means the problematic older ladies are gonna love him. Yeah, okay. The great thing about Ridge is that they give you a lifetime guarantee, which means if you want, you can have just one wallet for the rest of your life. Ridge is so confident in their product, they'll give you 45 days to test drive their wallet. That means you can get the wallet, use it, and if you don't like it, you can return it in 45 days. Unlike Brexit. Mm. Because Ridge is such great guys, they're gonna give you 15% off and free worldwide shipping and returns. That's 15% off and free worldwide shipping and returns. To take advantage of this incredible offer, go to ridge.com forward slash trigger. That's ridge.com forward slash trigger and use our special promo code, which is of course, trigger. You know, it, it shouldn't have shocked me because I've been observing this kind of thing for years. These doubts have been creeping in, but that was a very stark piece of reality that two hours before the new phone number and someone been able to deliver just like that now i don't know for certain that the burger bar boys infamous rivals the johnson crew were the people who took up that opportunity that we'd created for them but you can sort of picture the scene can't you the rival gang they're all sat around maybe having a smoke one of them comes in says wow boys put the call in we're gonna make a fortune guess what the cops have done for us mm. they've locked up the burger bar boys Wow, and they'll be celebrated. And that's the reality. That wherever, and this is at every level, at every level from the streets of the UK to, to transnational organised crime, 
there's if you if you if you catch someone you're always making someone else happy because the market never shrinks and the the really grim irony actually for the burger bar boys arrest if it was the johnson crew who took up that opportunity and bought a load more drugs and sold them at, you know for the next few weeks and months all the drugs that were caught that were found with the burger bar boys the guy that supplied them in the next rung up the ladder get to supply them twice because he supplies the opposition as well mm. Mm. so he's he's really happy because he sold the same market's drugs twice this is the reality people need to understand so and that is such i mean it's depressing really because what it's showing people and what it's demonstrating is that you're never going to get rid of demand there's always going to be a demand for these type of hard drugs so that being the case what should we do now well we have to take control because it's out of control at the moment we have to take control by legally regulating the market you know these these worst elements in our society are only are only empowered because we've given this given them this tremendous power this this huge financial benefit of the illegal drugs trade we've created this problem through drug prohibition we've created this problem by banning the drugs so we have to take control we have to regulate the products now people you know people get scared of that idea because it's normally presented as uh, we need to legalize and this one word is a scary word isn't it it conjures all sorts of images like uncertainty and maybe a free for all but you need to break it down into actual policy chunks about what that means individual policies because it's not a free for all the free for all is now it's the wild west now this is about taking control back so for example heroin that's the easiest one to regulate we wouldn't even need a change in the law we just go back to the british system and the british system is um it's the way we used to do it in the uk that if someone had a problem with drugs if they found themselves addicted to heroin or cocaine, they would go to the doctor and they'd get help. Rational, pragmatic help. And what that would mean is that they would get a prescription from the doctor. Just a pragmatic medical response to an unfortunate medical condition. And we had the British system since the 1920s, right up until the end of the 1960s. It was, it was stopped by the diplomatic pressure of the United States. But at the end of the British system in the 1960s, there was only 1,046 heroin consumers in the UK and the number was falling. Within 20 years of the British system ending, we had 300,000. And there's a very clear cause and effect there that the market was given to organised crime. Suddenly there was a big financial incentive for people to make a huge amount of money from it. And organised crime have long been good at exploiting uh, people, particularly where there is poverty and inequality, but also where people are traumatised. Because, and I, I found this out actually by using my empathy and listening to people over the years that I worked undercover. I refer to it now as weaponizing empathy. Um, but, but I did learn a lot, and I learned that almost all of the people who are using heroin and crack cocaine, almost all of these people are self-medicating for trauma. And most of it is childhood trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and neglect. And, but of course now, 
now that I'm an activist, now I read the, the academic uh, papers on, on these topics. And the academic papers also back that up, that at least two thirds of problematic heroin and crack cocaine consumers are self-medicating for these things. And organised crime exploit these people. And until we banned those drugs, organised crime couldn't exploit those people. So we leave them to the mercy of organised crime rather than taking care of them as a, as a society, which is a just, it's just disgusting, really, when you, when you think about it. It's an argument that makes a lot of sense when we sit down and have this conversation in this way. And I know that you deal with politicians and, you know, you, you interact with people who, who have the power to change this. What do they say to you, to, to these arguments? Well, I mean, it depends who it is. Um, and it's important to, to observe, I think, when talking about politicians and their views, that politicians respond to what they perceive the public believe. You know, as to Tony Benn famously said, politicians are either signposts or weather vanes, which is a rather cynical way of saying that because I, I have no problem with politicians being politicians. You know, I have no problem with them uh, behaving the way that they want their constituents to, to behave. It's just that's just politics. But they're a little out of touch at the moment. The public are ahead of them. Uh, but sorry, to answer your question, uh, many of them will just. Well, most of them don't understand the issue. That's the most important thing to say. They don't understand the issue. Well, even some conservative politicians. But they just, they just, they just don't. I mean, you know, the, 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 the daftest statements come out of so many politicians of, right across the political spectrum. They will say that drugs cause these harms. And what they're saying, they're evidencing that drug prohibition causes these harms. And it's a... It doesn't take much explanation to get it. No. It? Well, you just did it in 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. But we have to have that opportunity to be able to talk to them, which is why I'm always very grateful for interviews and conversations like this, because I can say to an audience, if you contact your MP, they will listen to you. If you email your MP, they will listen to you. They all tell me that, that they sit up and take notice. If they, if they have an email three times on the same topic, they're sitting up and taking notice of it, mm. but um, but there are you know there's a there's a variety of views. But I have to say that the growing support amongst politicians for drug law reform is a is across the political spectrum. It doesn't sit any particular place. It's not of the left and it's not of the right. It's scattered across the whole political spectrum, which is encouraging and it's good and it's the way it should be. Neil, that is good. But the question I asked you was really trying to get at why hasn't it happened yet. If you're right, and if what you're saying is correct, and I'm sure it is, why have we not had drug policy reform yet? Right. I love that question because there's an aspect of this that I'm working on very hard at the moment. Now, there's a, there's a few answers to that. One is that the press and the media have misrepresented drugs and drug policy and the results of it for decades. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Journalists, media gurus can talk whatever shit they want about drugs because they know they can get away with it. They don't have to evidence it. And they do make up a load of shit about it. That's one reason. Politicians spouting moralistic rubbish is another problem. But the biggest problem, and I've come to believe this, the biggest problem is what the police say. Now, this is not the fault of the police, I have to, I have to stress, because the, the, pub, the police have a duty to inform the public of what they do. 
They also have a duty to maintain public confidence. So when the police do a series of arrests or they seize a load of drugs, then they present this to the public in the news or on social media as a success. And they do this increasingly, actually, on social. They're getting more sophisticated at doing this on social media. So the police are constantly bombarding the Im images to the public of big seizures of cocaine, big cannabis factories all the time. And this is like powerful marketing. These are the same images repeated over and over. It's either the drug seizures or it's the rows of mugshots of a gang that's been caught. They're constantly repeated to the public. And the message that the public gets is that, well, for one, they're reminded there's something to be scared of. And second, they're reassured that the police are doing something. Look at that, what they've done. Look at all the drugs they've caught. And they're reassured. So the public are told, essentially, that the current policy works. But it's dishonest. It's not true. And the police know this from their own criminal databases, their, their own criminal intelligence, that actually more often than not, drugs policing increases crime in an area. Because if you create a gap in the market, then two or more people will fight over that gap and violence goes up. Happens time and time again. The police know this, but they're not telling the public that, are they? They're not telling the public that this will not prevent anybody from getting hold of their drugs. It's not even going to put the price up at all. It's making no difference at all. But it's not the way it's presented to the public. Now, you have to see this in comparison with, with, with conventional crime. Because if police arrest a burglar, burglaries will go down because there are a limited number of people who will commit a burglary. So that is a positive, provable activity. Drugs policing does not reduce crime. But the police are constantly telling the public that it is. So that, I think, is the biggest impediment to the growth of the social movement. Because like any social justice issue in history, change with drug policy will come through the growth of the social movement rather than political leadership. Same as any social movement, uh, whether it's uh, gender equality, um, the illegality of homosexuality, whatever it is, comes from social movement and what the police are constantly daily telling the public is slowing down that mo movement which is why is one of the reasons why leap my organization is so important because it falls on us really we are duty bound to challenge those narratives and when we were talking with carl hart about this he made such a good point which is we've been in the the messages and the narratives that we've been given from mainstream media from movies, from books. They're so infantile, you know, the junkie. And in, in, the moment I say that word, we can all picture that particular person in our heads, but it's a two-dimensional character. And like you said, it doesn't address the fact that this is obviously someone deeply traumatised, deeply damaged, using drugs to just be able to cope and function throughout life. Not really function either, just exist. Yeah, exactly. And it's dehumanising, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's always dehumanising... Uh, language and you, you, different regions around the UK have their favourites. You know, uh, bag rat is one of my most detested ones. But you know, I say it just so that people can be aware of just how dehumanising it can be. And Carl's right. I mean, I love Carl. He, his, his angle on this is uh, on, on that topic is is very good. 
Um, I've lost my thread. Sorry. No, so it's, it's fine. We were talking about how mainstream media uh, films dehumanise people who take drugs, and what they do is, is essentially infantilise a very complex discussion conversation. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, there's so many examples I could give you, but one that sticks in my head is there's a, there was a young woman called Uma who I spoke to, I got to know quite well. And she she was amazing. She was one of the most generous people I've ever met. Um, and this is very common amongst problematic heroin users, actually. They're really, really generous. And I, I because I'd had some people being suspicious of me having money, I, play, I decided to play rattling one day, mm. just pretend to be rattling, withdrawing. And so I wandered around in the morning, you know, rat, obviously rattling and holding my... That's, the way I was holding myself. And Uma came over to me and says, hey, mate, are you hanging out? I says, yeah, yeah, I, but I'll be all right when I get some money. And she just pulled a fiver out of her pocket. I says, there you go, mate. And I says, well, aren't you going to need that? And she says, no, I'm fine. I've just had some. I'll be all right for the next few hours. You need it now. Just absolute, pure, unadulterated honesty. She saw the need. She didn't give it a second thought. She was incredible. But she said to me one day, she said, well, I can stop using. I do, actually. Every few weeks, I stop to bring my tolerance down. I stop for a couple of weeks. Says, but the problem is, when I stop, I become suicidal because I remember the feeling of my uncle's fingernails when he used to sexually assault me as a little girl. So for her, and like so many like her, taking heroin was a pragmatic, rational decision very rational kept her alive it helped her forget heroin's actually really really good at helping people deal with trauma really good that's why they do it that's why people do it mm. to cope with trauma not deal with i would say to cope with trauma right yeah that's a good correction actually to to cope with to 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 blot it out in the absence of any other care. Well, well, exactly. This is where I was going to go. I mean, it strikes me that obviously one of the problems here is we've got people who are not getting mental health and ways of processing trauma, uh, which are available. I mean, they're there. We know how to help people who've been through trauma now. We've got tools to do it, but they're obviously falling through the cracks. And then that's when you find ways to cope instead of addressing the issue, right? Ravines. Yeah. rather than cracks yeah. yeah yeah exactly and it's 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 an awful thing to think about really and obviously for you to have seen that uh to seen so many people go through that it i don't know like where where do we go from here neil where do we go yeah where do uh, we go well i don't know what to ask you because what you're what you're saying makes absolute hundred percent logical sense to me and Every guest we had on, particularly in recent times, I've become more bad cop when we interview people and I'm like testing their ideas and trying to find a, a flaw in their argument. And it, it, it's a no-brainer to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the evidence is so powerful. The arguments are so clear. This is so clearly just rationale and logic that it makes our job as anyone involved in the drug law reform world. It makes our job very easy to, to explain people, but we just need the platforms, which is why I'm so really grateful for you to invite me to come and speak to you because it's the platforms we need. We need people out there sharing it. We need people out there discussing it with their friends and family and getting them to watch this. This is how we win. 
We, we, this, is, this is the process of the social movement growing. So I really appreciate it. But wh- where to go from here in terms of policy? Well, I mean, you know, we could have overdo- overdose prevention sites like they have in European countries and Canada. No one's died in one of those anywhere since they started anywhere in the world. And yet our government is saying no. There's no excuse for that. We've got the biggest drug deaths in Europe. Scotland's biggest dr- drug deaths in the world per capita. We need overdose prevention sites right now. Just it needs to be urgently happening. We need to be contacting every, every one of our MPs to demand it. We need heroin assisted treatment, which is the British system revived. It's happening already in Cleveland, paid for by the money from the Police and Crime Commission, actually. The police are paying for this, which is, you know, the police being ahead of the politics in this country is extraordinary, really. We need a legally regulated cannabis market to protect our children because it's easier for our children to get cannabis than it is alcohol because dealers don't ask for ID, do they? And, you know, there is evidence from North America that regulated markets protect our children better, so we need to protect them. But also, you regulate the cannabis markets and you're taking a huge amount of money out of the pockets of organised crime, which they always reinvest profits into corruption. So we're making our society safer and more secure you know, this is a security issue. We're making our society more secure. If we do that, we take that money away from them. And also, you know, from a public health perspective, we don't know what's in that bag of green that, that, our, that our dealer delivers. Not really. You know, some connoisseurs might, to, might have something to say about what I've just said, but more often than not, we don't. So and every commodity needs to be it needs to be regulated to protect people. And, you know, in all the drugs in between, they need to be sold by licensed pharmacies. Now, if you consider MDMA, for example, MDMA is the perfect example of the drug that is not banned because it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's banned. And I'm sure if you had Dave Nutt on, I would imagine he's 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 commenting on, on this as well. You know, this is all of the deaths that come from MDMA is because it's unregulated, is because it's not what people expected, or it's a tablet, which is four or five times too too big a dose. These are regulatory issues. Regulate that drug and you literally save lives. MDMA deaths would be virtually non-existent. And also, who are we to judge? Who is anyone to judge if someone wants to drop an MDMA pill and dance to electronic music in a field or wherever? Who cares? <laughs> it's just, it's, the sort of liberty arguments don't get talked about very often. But really, it's, we need to have parallels with the social movement that ended the illegality of homosexuality and that's still developing to end the prejudice. Because it's not for anyone to judge what other people do with their own mind and body, is it? And we need to be talking in those terms. Now that's, not a popular view within the drug law reform world that because as it's pointed out to me by some allies you can't argue about personal liberty because not enough people care about personal liberty because <laughs> they don't generally. yeah we've seen that over covid yeah <laughs> exactly they, they just don't, they don't care yeah so but i still even though the evidence suggests that other arguments are stronger i always like to mention it because it's another topic of conversation we need to get out there what right do we have to judge anybody what they do 
with their own mind and body? What right does anyone have? Well, I suppose on that one, there is a counter argument I can think of, which is drugs have an impact on people beyond the person who's taking them, right? Um, so I can see the argument for that. I just think when it comes to the, your explanation of why people take drugs, I just think we, you need a different approach. Yes, someone becoming a drug addict is, has an impact on their family, on people around them, on society. It's not good. But the way to deal with that is to address the cause of what's making them take the drugs, I suppose. What do you think is the strongest argument against your position? Strongest argument against? Yeah, the thing you find most difficult to have to, to deal with when people, if people challenge you. Uh... About <laughs> decriminalization or legalization. I can't think of a single rational strong argument, to be honest. I mean, you know, all of the opponents of drug law reform are just batshit crazy they're just moral it's just moral judgment how can you argue with moral judgment i mean you said you've had peter hitchens on mm. he's just just looking at it from a moralistic lens he wants to judge and control people he hasn't got any rational arguments at all he argues that cannabis is behind terrorism and violence and it's not the evidence is quite clear it isn't um so there really isn't any argument that's difficult to counter, honestly. But I, I, I appreciate you challenging that point I made then, though. Uh, and it's an important point you just made. And it, it prompts me to make clear that not all drug use is problematic. In fact, 90% of drug use is not problematic. And the 10% that is problematic, it's a sliding scale. So some people need more intervention than others. But the important thing to note about our current drug laws about the system of prohibition, is it makes problematic use more likely and more dangerous because people are pushed to the margins. They're criminalised, so they're not able to get help. So wherever you look around the world where there is less prohibition and more harm reduction for that, pro for that problematic cohort, they, there is less problematic consumption. So, for example, in Portugal, where they've decriminalised possession, they haven't gone the whole way and legalised, uh, legally regulated the market yet, but they've decriminalised possession. So people who have a problem with drugs, they get help. So their problematic consumption has dramatically dropped. Their overall consumption hasn't dropped. There's still just as many people taking drugs as there was before. It's made no difference to that. Their problematic consumption has gone down. Their problems with bloodborne viruses has gone down. Their drug deaths have dropped. They used to be the highest, now they're the lowest. You can't argue with that. No, you can't. You alluded to something, that the money from drugs then went into corruption. And the one thing that I wanted to talk with you about, well, there's lots of things, obviously, this has been an incredible interview, so thank you for coming on, but it's corruption within the police because it's something that I don't think we talk about enough. And, and I'll give you an example. We all know the Stephen Lawrence case, the, the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence. Obviously awful, obviously horrendous. And we all talk about the racist element of it because it played a large part. But we don't also talk about the fact that the coppers involved, a lot of them, were corrupt. How big is, a, is corruption within the police force a problem and how much of it is due to these gangs being awash with drugs and being able to buy p p coppers and make them corrupt? It's huge. Uh, it's the, the scale of corruption that's caused by drug prohibition is eye-watering and uncomfortable. Now, I, I make lots of my former colleagues uncomfortable by saying this because it feels like it's, bit, it's a criticism of them. It's not. 
it's still a tiny minority of cops, but a tiny minority of cops can do a massive, massive load of harm. And it's absolutely endemic. It's endemic and impossible to defend against. Impossible. Because there's too much money involved. There is more money in the criminality of the illicit drug markets than anything, any other form of criminality. Anything. But it's not just the money which causes the corruption. It's the mechanism of trying to police the drug markets. Actually causes it. Now, bear with me. I'll, I'll, try and, mm. I'll try and explain this. So where the police have a successful operation and they arrest, say, a drug dealer which controls the heroin supply in a quarter of the city, the dealer or kingpin character or gang, which is more able which is able to take up that opportunity or most able to take up that opportunity created by that policing activity is someone who controls another quarter of the city. So they expand their influence. They increase their market share, which means they expand, they increase their disposable income. And the police are continually changing the market like this, continually. And what happens is you get people increasing their market share or you get people forming monopolies, or you get people forming cooperatives, which means there's more money able to be invested in corruption. And over time, this mechanism is what increases corruption, and this happens at every level all over the world. One of the best examples for it is in Mexico. Yeah. There used to be 20 cartels. Now there's only three cartels. Each one of those three cartels has a GDP, if you put it in those terms, bigger than most West African countries. Those West African countries have been corrupted completely. In the last 12 months, there have been five military coups in West Africa. Each one of those military coups has been about the control of the big, single biggest financial asset for those nations. And the single biggest financial asset is the money that's made through the cocaine transit routes. It's about who controls the bribes from transnational organised crime is what's driven those military coups. So countries like Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Senegal, Sierra Leone, these countries are now narco-states. They are not run by legitimate democratic institutions. They're run by transnational organised crime. Because why corrupt a customs official and a police chief when you can afford to take over the whole government? And they can afford to take over the whole government because of decades of policing activity, which has thinned them out and made the last one standing incredibly rich. This is destroying the fabric of our democracy and our security worldwide. The Global Initiative into Trans Transnational Organised Crime, which is a body which studies international uh, police criminal intelligence, they made a day centre report, they put a, published a report last September which stated that the growing power of transnational organised crime now is the single biggest threat to our security and the, even the, the system of democracy itself. And we're doing this by fighting this war, by trying to deal with police, by trying to deal with drugs by policing. And this happens at every level. Now, we feel very smug in our stable democracy in the UK, very smug. But the corruption is here as well. And I've come across it numerous times. I once in, in a, the operation in Nottingham, uh, we'd been working very long hours and two of my backup team went off sick. 
in the morning, I got introduced to these two new cops I'd not met before, which, which unsettled me a little. Shook the hand of the first one, no problem with him at all. Shook the hand of the second one and the hairs just went up in the back of my neck. You know, I'd been working undercover for months by this time and my senses were pretty fine-tuned, mm. verging on paranoia. <laughs> and this guy was just wrong. He, he was clearly wrong to me instinctively. So I went to the guy running the operation. He said, boss, sorry, don't trust this guy. Don't want him anywhere near it. Don't want him knowing what I'm doing. He says, fine, we'll exclude him. Ex exclude them both so they don't ask any questions and they don't know anything about this job yet. So it's fine. Didn't think much more of it. But then 12 months later, when the gangster Colin Gunn was brought down, it turned out that that cop was an employee of Colin Gunn. He'd paid him to join the police. His, his, his name was Charlie Fletcher. His details are all over, you know, are on the internet. He, by the time I met him, he'd been in the police for seven years. Fucking hell. <laughs> and he was being paid £2,000 £2, a month on top of his police wages, plus bonuses for good information. Now, he'd been paid to join the police. In the debrief for that, one, of the, one senior cop said to me at the time, look, Woodsy, yeah, of course this happens. We know this happens. With this much money involved, how can it not happen? And it is accepted and understood by senior covert police all over the country that this happens. But why doesn't the public know this? Don't you think the public should know this? But the problem is that one of the standing directives from the Home Office to Chief Constables is to maintain public confidence. Makes sense, doesn't it? If the, if you, the public lose confidence in the police, fabric of society could break down and all that. But the trouble is, that means that constable, chief constables are not being honest with the public. And if the public knew the extent of the corruption, then I think the public would quite quickly demand change of their MPs. Now, consider the, the mechanisms that I used to work under. As an undercover cop, before I, got, before I got loaned to a particular constabulary, they would have to set up their operation as dictated by the Special Operations Unit. We'd have to have an intel guy, an exhibits guy, uh, back up and in a certain cell. And they were not, and they were told they were not allowed to even communicate with their colleagues during the whole operation. They were completely separate. People wouldn't know where they'd gone or what they were doing. They were told just before I got there that they were not allowed to ask me my real name, not allowed to ask me where I'm from, and they would be disciplined, punished if they did. So I was giving, I was working with the cops using the same pseudonym as I was with the gangsters. And of course, the reason for that is to try and protect me. Now consider this, that only happens for covert drugs operations. Doesn't happen for any other kind of policing. None at all. Oh, no, apart from witness protection, which is all about drugs witnesses anyway, all of it. So that system in itself is evidence of just how seriously and the extent of corruption that exists as a result of our drug policy. Hey Francis, do you go on the internet to look at naughty stuff? Yeah. Is it stuff that you'd be embarrassed to show your friends? Yeah. Is it stuff that would get you cancelled? Yeah. Well, next time you decide to be naughty and watch more trigonometry, you need to use ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter, mate, because I use incognito mode. Ha! It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. 
That's why even when you're at home, you should never go online without using ExpressVPN. My career is finished! There, there, you'll have to leave trigonometry, can't be helped. Anyway, it doesn't matter who your internet service provider is. ISPs in the US can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the site you visit. Absolutely finished! ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, you won't even realize you have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background and is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. What am I gonna do? ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Go on, Francis, do the last bit. If you don't want to end up like me, protect your online activity today with a VPN rated number one by Business Insider. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash trigger, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash trigger, expressvpn.com slash trigger to learn more. And Neil, those corrupt cops, they're particularly dangerous, aren't they? Because I remember you saying on another interview that actually, if, you know, you aren't worried about former gangsters, but former police officers, that's something else entirely. Oh, God, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, for, for drug wars, we interviewed a good friend of mine, um, Frank Matthews, and he had a big problem with corruption in the Met. And There's a surprise. Well, it happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. But he, his problems are definitely all, all here. He, well, he worked here. And he was a whistleblower for corrupt activity. And when he was a whistleblower, he ended up being followed by an entire um, entire surveillance unit of Special Branch. He was being surveilled by his own team. And he got to the point with problems that he was having with he, corrupt cops that he knew were corrupt was that he thought he was going to get killed. And he's he's one of the, he's someone who's had more dealings with gangsters than probably anyone I know, uh, some very high level and international organised crime figures. And they've never worried him as much as, as, as the corrupt cops. And I have to say exactly the same thing. It's the corruption and negligence within policing that's almost got me killed more, more often than, than not. And again, you know, I... I, I apologise to many of my colleagues, which really, which really get offended by this. But we all need to be honest. We all need to be honest because the way to protect our police, our criminal justice system, and all of other other, other institutions from this corruption is to take the power away from organised crime and legally regulate the drug markets. And until we do, this corruption is only going in one direction. You know, people watch Line of Duty. Okay, some of the dramatic lines in it are a bit far-fetched, but the substance of the corruption is very well informed. What about The Wire? Have you seen The Wire? I have. The Wire is a masterpiece. And one of the reasons it's a masterpiece is because it's entirely based on truth. Mm. One, I'm, my organisation, the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, I'm on the board of the organisation in America. And one of the other board members, a guy called Neil Franklin, 
he used to be on the murder squad in Baltimore that's featured and he knows all of the characters it's based on <laughs> based on all real people um you know that the guy who's just died recently played the Omar Little that's it Omar he says that he knows the Omar person. Devon Little he, he says he knows the person that's based on and that's yeah. absolutely accurate he's met him he knows him yeah it's all accurate he says the only thing that was really truly fictional was the episode Hamsterdam yeah, yeah. but the rest of it there's real people and real events and it's a clear message, The Wire, isn't it? Mm. You know, this ain't no war. War's end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, you, you're right. It's a masterpiece. Uh, we've got a few, uh, literally a few minutes left and it feels like it's flown by. It's yeah. been really great to chat. Uh, can we do just a couple of like human interest questions? Like you talked about particularly the last big w- realization that you had when you spent seven months undercover and you felt like you might get killed every day. Like, what was going on when you're there in that situation? Why did you constantly feel at risk and all of that? Well, I mean, the Burger Bar boys had really refined the the intimidation. They'd really got it down to an art form. And this is, this is what our drug policy does. You know, the most successful gangs get really good at this. And they were... They were incredible. So the, the violence and threats of violence that they'd used towards me, you know, they'd stripped me at gunpoint uh, once. They took me to the edge of this, the race course. What was your relationship with them? Like, how, how, how did you ingratiate yourself with them? I built myself a bit of a reputation as being a good thief. Um, and I built a reputation. I traded with a lot of the people who, who handle stolen goods. You know, and I could give them gifts sometimes and I was buying increasing weights from them. Um... And I just, I just, I just became one of the people they were happy to deal with directly. Okay. Um, mm. But there was, I was never, I was never friendly with them. Right. So, so you go to a meeting and suddenly they strip you at gunpoint to make sure you haven't got a wire on you or something. Is that right? Yeah. And that was, that was an interest. That was a decision I was pleased to make because the day before I'd got a bit uncomfortable with how they were behaving towards me. And so the day after I decided not to wear a wire and I've been wearing wow. a camera by that point. Holy but that shit. morning I thought, will I, shall I, shan't I? And I decided oh, not to. Mate. What a good decision that was. Because when they got me when they got me to the edge of that park and they said, right, strip, you're fucking 5-0, man. You're fucking heat. And one of them lifted up a T-shirt and there was a gun tucked into his tracksuit bottoms. And now it's weird, the thoughts that go through your head when you've got this adrenaline flooding your head. Because I looked at that gun in his tracksuit bottoms and I thought, how the hell is that elastic keeping that gun up? <laughs> <laughs> It's a strange thing. And also, when he says you're fucking 5-0, man, and I remember looking at him thinking, you're not old enough to have seen Hawaii 5-0. Yeah. Again, another just weird yeah. things that go yeah. through your head. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you keep your cool? How do you keep your cool under that kind of pressure? Because, look, we all face pressure in our jobs. And- yeah, maybe not like <laughs> that, mate. Imagine <laughs> you wake up in the morning, I'm just here with a, with a gun and my elastic going, you're 5-0. <laughs> Demanding you strip. <laughs> I mean, well, I can imagine that part. Anyway, yeah. but how do you deal with that? How do you deal with with that level of pressure? Because we talk about stressful jobs, but, but that is something else entirely. Well, that's an interesting question because you know, as a young man, when I when I had my first near death experiences working undercover, I was I was really pleased with myself because you know you don't know how you're going to deal with shit like that, do you? Mm. You don't know. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But I had the advantage, like some people do apparently. Uh, I had the advantage that when I have a surge, I, well, that doesn't work now, God no. But as a young man, if, when, when I had a surge of adrenaline, I had the sensation that time was slowing down. Mm-hmm. And I had a calming feeling that I could I could think very clearly and that I had all the time in the world to think. So I could do it with complete confidence. Wow. 
And I just had this feeling, right, okay, there's a problem, got to think it through, deal with it. And I just stayed in that sort of moment, fueled by adrenaline, so to speak. And, you know, it boosted my ego because I'm coming away from this and my colleagues, my peers are saying, wow, you know, you're not breaking a sweat or what? Look at you. And that boosted my ego as a young man, suited me, thinking, wow, you know, I'm finally good at something. But no one told me that that was destroying the fabric of my brain, um, that these events, you know, you, these high, high intense experiences were causing me damage. You know, I've, I'm, I'm diagnosed now with chronic PTSD and I, I have most, most days now are, best, are good, but I have some dark days and I, I, I jumped and I, you know, I jumped into all of those times with wild abandon and carelessness, really. I had no idea that, that would do that to me. And no one told me, you know, the gung-ho culture within policing, within drugs policing. No one, no one told me that, that perhaps I need to take a breath and, and, and look after myself. The only way I looked after myself was, um, was with alcohol. Did you find yourself almost becoming addicted to that kind of high-octane lifestyle? Though in, yeah, in the first few years, um, it drove me and I, and I loved it. I did. I loved the intellectual exercise of the, the lying, pe- lying to people, the manipulating people. And I also love the challenge of, you know, it's, it's like a rapid improvement. It's a rapid learning exercise. You know, we all like to feel like we learned something and we've developed personally, don't we? But it's like turn, that's turning it up to 100. It's like you learn so much about yourself, literally in minutes. And that's a very heady experience to be able to learn and, and how you acutely learn people's body language and you become so quickly responsive to it. And yeah, it's very heady, but by the time I was working with the Burger Bar boys, it was just exhausting. And I, was, I think I was already probably multiply traumatised, well, I will have been, and I was just piling it on top by then. And Neil, you know, again, going back to Carl Hart's point of the word, we see the word junkie or we hear the word junkie, we get an image. We get we do that exact same thing with the word gangster. But you've been with these people, you you've talked with them, you've spoken to them, you've seen the probably the other side to them. Who are these people? Are, are do they have similar personality traits or is it literally from every part of, you know, the spectrum that life has to offer? Yeah, I get in discussion with some drug policy people I know about my use of the word gangsters. Uh and I, I do use the word consciously and I know that it has, it conjures up mixed images for different people, but it's a hook for an audience. So I use it, but I say gangsters and some of them were generally vicious, but they're all a product of the system. They're all a product of drug, drug prohibition and they would not be the way they are unless drug prohibition, but, but if, if it wasn't there, they wouldn't. And we need to be aware of that. Now I'll give you an example. There was a, back in 2001, I met uh, this kid who was a part of a gang and he was 16 when I met him. And he was a friendly kid, you know, I could have a laugh with him. He was a nice kid, good sense of humour. And then six months later, he, he'd become a terrifying 17-year-old. And I'd seen him change in that period of time. And he was changing and he was learning to become casually violent and casually, and, and to intimidate people. And whereas at the start, I'd have a laugh with him. By the end, he'd casually bash my head into a lamppost just to let me know who's boss. Bang, there you go, as we're walking past. 
And I, I saw that change. And it was a conscious effort for him to learn to be like that because that's how his peers taught him he had to survive. And he's right. Because if you're casually violent like that, you don't get grassed up. If people are scared of you, you don't get grassed up. If people are scared of you, people don't provide a witness statement. You survive longer. Now, I don't, I'm sure... Now, oh, bear in mind that, that quite then, back, to, back in 2001, it was unusual for someone so young to be at the front line of heroin and crack cocaine dealing. Now it's more often than not they are. Now they're all... There's 50,000 of them now. More changed brought by drug prohibition, you know. Well done. <laughs> um, but I'm sure that that kid, when he was 12 or 13, wasn't looking to a future thinking, I'm going to be learning how to be as violent as possible to be part of a drug dealing gang. I just don't believe it. This is what the current system did to him. Now, the Burger Bar boys, they were second and third generation gangsters. They'd been brought up that way by their parents. But their parents didn't have to have been that way. We're doing this to our communities. We're doing this to our young men. It's changing the personalities of our young men. And it plays out, you see it play out with the growing knife violence for the younger ones, the next generation. They've got older peers telling them you've got a, you need a reputation because their communities have been changed by this law. And how bad are the next generation going to be unless we turn it around? Well, Neil, on that happy note, <laughs> we've come to the end of our listen. It's been great. And I know you've got stories for days. So perhaps if you're kind enough to come back at some point, we can delve into a little bit more. Uh, but for now, uh, we're going to ask you a couple of questions from our local supporters that only they will get to see. But before we do that, we'll wrap up the main interview here by asking you the question we always ask at the end, which is what is the one thing we're not talking about as a society that you think we really should be? Okay, now explain the mechanism of corruption. Mm. That brings us halfway, halfway to this next point. That corruption means that COP26, the great environmental uh, meeting, which was trying to turn around the climate, trying to stop the climate catastrophe. Many countries, which are the most important countries, which need to stop deforestation, make pledges, but they can't go carry through those pledges because they don't control their own backyards. Drug dealing, transnational crime does. So I mentioned West Africa, Guinea-Bissau, Guinea... Uh, Senegal. Senegal. Sierra Leone. But if, you, but if you look at Latin America as well, all of the equatorial countries, governance has dissolved. The governments have no say of what goes on in the forests. It cannot be stopped because drugs organised crime is too powerful. There is only two options to stop this disaster. And that is to get transnational organised crime around the table. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that would be popular. <laughs> If we, want the, if we want to stop the planet burning, that's yeah. option one. Or we take their power away from them by taking their market off them by legally regulating. Those are the two choices if we want to stop the lungs of the world being cut down. Neil, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. If people want to find you online or your work, where do they go? Well, please follow the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, uh, Leap UK. We have the website. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at UKLeap. Uh, my Twitter is at Woodsy Zero, uh, which is, I, I know I chose it before I knew I was going to be public. Yeah. <laughs> but you'll find, you'll find me. And the yeah. book, the books, 
if you want more undercover stories, it's Good Cop, Bad War. If you want a history of British drug policy, it's Drug Wars. Fantastic stuff. Neil Woods, thank you so much. And thank you for watching and listening. We're going to do our locals questions now, but thank you so much for the moment. We'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or Raw Show, all of which go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. The government has just passed a bill, which is... Holy shit! I know! Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.